All right, you guys can have a seat. Um, you know, I love that song we just sang, You Are Worthy of It All, um, because that song is taken entirely from Scripture. And um, I, two things I love about that song. One is it is a glimpse of what eternity looks like, what the king of, or what the throne of Jesus looks like at this very moment. In Revelation 5, John the Revelator gives us a picture into what heaven is like. And he says that in heaven, there is coming a day when every knee will bow, justice will be no more, or justice will be completely served, every tear will be wiped from our eyes, um, and every pe people of every tribe, tongue, nation, language will sing, you are worthy of it all together. And so that's, that song reminds us what Revelation 5 teaches us, that there is coming a day where all will be put right. Um, the second thing that that song teaches, or that Revelation 5 teaches us, that this song reminds us, is that God hears our prayers. Um, you know, sometimes we can think, like, does, where are my prayers going? And Revelation 5 says that our prayers are like incense that rise into heaven and fill a bowl in heaven. And so just like you can smell right now what the people outside are smoking in the park, anybody smelling that? Am I, I'm, not, I'm not the only one, right? Um, the scriptures say that when we pray, an incense of our prayers rises into heaven. The angels smell it, the elders smell it, people who've gone before us smell it, the great crowd, cloud of witnesses, and Jesus himself smells and hears and answers our prayers. And so what I wanna do right now is in the wake of just the last couple of weeks, national tragedies. We, first we had Buffalo, um, and then the horror of this past week in Texas. Um, I just want us to pray um, as a church and trust that our prayers are like incense and that God will hear them today. And so we're gonna do this a little different. I'm gonna pray, it's gonna be on the screen, the prayer is, uh, so people can see. So um, I'll read um, and then the bold parts if you guys would recite them out loud. We are together praying as the people of God. And so pray with me. Oh God, who gathers what has been scattered to us now in the shadow of your wings. Oh Christ, who binds our wounds. Oh Spirit, who enters our every grief. Be present in the midst of this far-reaching pain, O Lord, for we are reeling again at news of another loss of life that touches us all, news of flourishing diminished, of individuals harmed, of pain imposed, not only upon victims and their families who bear now the immediate brunt of it, but also upon our nation, for we are connected as a people, and this hurts, this grief touches us all. Engage our imaginations and move our hearts to compassion, O oh Lord, that we would interact with these casualties, not as news stories or statistics, but as our own sisters and brothers, sons and daughters, flesh and blood, divine image bearers, these children, irreplaceable individuals, whose losses will leave gaping holes in homes, friendships, workplaces, churches, schools, organizations, and neighborhoods. Oh, 
You do not run from our brokenness, oh God. You move ever toward those in need and your heart is always inclined toward those who suffer. Now let your mercies be active through the hands, the words, and the compassionate care of those who willingly enter this sadness to console and to serve. The helpers, the counselors, the first responders, those who offer aid and protection, the pastors and intercessors, those who meet immediate practical needs, those who seek to heal physical wounds, and those who come after to carry on the long, hard work of rebuilding families and hearts and lives and community. Even in the shadow of such tragedy, let us not lose hope. Give us eyes to see the rapid movements of ru mercy rushing to fill these newly wounded spaces. Let us see in this the echoes of your own mercy and compassion, a foretaste of your kingdom coming to earth and move our hearts also, equipping us to intercede, to act, and to respond however we are able. Arrest the hearts and stay the hands of any who even now might be plotting further evil and violence against others, O oh Christ. You once brooded over the formless chaos of ancient waters and you brought forth the order and flourishing of creation. Do so again, O oh Spirit of God. From the chaos of this tragedy, would you call forth new life and order and flourishing? Take even what our adversary might have meant for evil and from it bring forth eternal good. You alone have strength to carry this people. You alone have wisdom and power to heal the wounds of a nation. You alone have compassion enough to enter our widespread grief and turn it to hope. Amen. Now, um, I'm going to ask Pastor Kyle is going to come up. He's teaching for us this afternoon, and he's going to be continuing our series that we've been doing on spiritual growth, on the me we want to be. Um, and we talk, he's talking about relationships and community and fellowship today. And before he comes up, I just want to say that, you know, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, they started the Methodist movement, and John Wesley was the preacher. And, and uh, John Wesley, nobody, everybody was always intimidated by him, but of Charles Wesley, his brother, they said, someone said, Charles was a man made for friendship. And I think, what a cool moniker for someone. And Kyle is a man made for friendship. If you have had the privilege of being friends with Kyle, you know that he's unbelievably generous, a very good gift giver, and he and Colette are incredibly hospitable in their homes. And so as he talks about fellowship and community and relationships, um, you guys, we can all trust and know that Kyle is a man who lives out what he preaches in this area. So everybody, give your attention to Pastor Kyle. Thank you, Will, for the kind words. Good afternoon, church. It's good to be with you today. Uh, preaching God's word um, with you and talking about relationships. And so I just want to open up real quick with a question. Um, and, and you can put your hands up for this. Um, do you have a best friend? Do you have a best friend? Hands up, best friend, if you have a best friend. Okay, um, you can put those down. Uh, when you were growing up, um, did your best friend change 
grade by grade, school by school, year by year? Um, did you have best friends through the years? So maybe some different best friends at, at points in your life. Okay, all right, yeah, a few less hands, but that's good. Um, you don't have to raise any hands for this one. Uh, maybe you have uh, one of those ride or die friends. Um, those friends who are with you no matter what. Uh, they're, they're with you in, in the good times, they're with you in the bad times, um, but they are with you, they're your friends. Or maybe you don't have a friend like that and you're wondering, um, what's the key to a deep friendship? And what's the key to a deep relationship um, that maybe I've yet to uncover because I just don't have a friend like that? Um, have you ever also thought about uh, why deep relationships are so important? Uh, you hear, if you've been coming to church for a while, uh, especially coming to Crossroads, you hear us talk about relationship, relationship. Um, you hear us talk about friendships, the value of those things. You hear us talk about community and groups and all those things. So why is it so important? Well, church, as with many things, um, I wouldn't be very good at my job if I didn't lead you to seek out what the scriptures say about these things. And so that's what we're going to do this afternoon. Um, so what does the Bible have to say about friendships and about relationships? Uh, well, quite a lot, actually. Um, I want to give you a few examples. Think about these examples of true, deep friendship in the Bible. Uh, we have the example of Ruth and Naomi um, from the book of Ruth. We have the example of David and his friend Jonathan. Um, uh, it, it's mentioned in 1 Samuel 18 how they are friends. Um, we have uh, the example of Jesus and Lazarus. Um, actually, in John 11:35, when Lazarus dies and Jesus goes to his tomb, it's, it's uh, one of the shortest verses in the Bible. It says, Jesus wept. Well, why did he weep? Because Lazarus was his friend. It's one of the reasons he wept. Lazarus was his friend. We have the example of Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila um, in, in the New Testament, and also Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus in the New Testament. These are examples of friendships. So what characterizes these friendships? Uh, what's the main characteristic that permeates uh, every solid friendship or relationship? What is it? What's the secret sauce, if you will, of a good friendship? Well, I would contend uh, to you and with you that the Bible says it's love. It's love. And I think this idea can be best summed up in Romans 13.8. In Romans 13.8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So to give you some context there, Paul, the author of Romans, he's talking about debt, and he's talking about Christian service to society. He's talking about government and authorities. He's talking about a lot in this section, um, especially in the previous paragraph. But then he talks about debt in a different way when he gets to verse 8, and he, and he mentions love. He says there's one type of debt that's never paid in full. There's one type of debt that you should have to other people that you never, ever pay off, and that's love. Paul says, if there's anything that you're going to owe someone, it ought to be love. You'll never be out of debt to love another person. Now, why does Paul say such a thing? Um, well, it's not Paul's original idea. He didn't invent it. He didn't come up with it. Um, he's simply continuing the Bible's tradition, uh, the Bible's theme, if you will, of the commandment of God to love one another. Uh, back in the Old Testament, we see that God tells his people in Leviticus 19, verse 18, he says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. Um, listen to this exchange that Jesus has with the religious leaders. So Jesus is talking with the really uh, super religious people of his day um, that are in leadership. 
And this is what it says in Mark 12. Uh, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And those are the words of Jesus. Now, maybe that offends you a little bit. Maybe you're thinking right now of people in your life who are not very lovable. How can God expect you to love those people? How is this even possible? Or is this even possible? Maybe you're thinking like, is this even possible? Is this just something the Bible says, but like it can't really be realized? So I'd invite you to stay with me today. We're going to continue our series, The Me I Want to Be, and we're going to talk about how God uses other people to mold us into the image of his son, Jesus. That's what we're talking about. So the first thing that that I want you to understand today, you must prioritize life-giving relationships. You must prioritize life-giving relationships. God uses people to form other people. This is why the word fellowship is so important in the scriptures. Even though we seem to maybe kind of sort of like have lost sight of that word um, a little bit in our modern vocabulary, fellowship. Uh, So what is fellowship? Fellowship actually comes from the Greek word koinonia. There's your Greek lesson for the day. That's as deep as we're getting. So you did it. Uh, Koinonia, koinonia. Um, That depicts an interactive relationship between God and believers who are sharing new life through Christ. So there's an interactive relationship between God and his people who are sharing new life through Christ. Um, We call this fellowship. And the Holy Spirit is the one who facilitates this kind of community among believers. And so Paul mentions this when he writes to the church in Corinth, to the Corinthian church. Um, um, In in the end of uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Unfortunately, fellowship today has kind of become a churchy word. It's become a churchy word that's code for like church hangout, right? Fellowship, fellowship. That's code for church hangout. So this could simply mean chatting after service. It could mean um, any informal church social gathering is fellowship automatically, right? Like if you grew up in church, you know this is true. Like no matter what it is, it's a fellowship. Um, Some churches even have fellowship groups. Some churches have fellowship lunches. Um, Some churches have a fellowship pastor. My point is, when we overuse words, they lose their meaning. And so imagine asking your coworkers at your job to meet up for fellowship once you're off the clock. They're probably going to think you're referring to the name of a new, like, restaurant or bar in Midtown or something. Oh, Oh, fellowship, where's that? Where is that? But biblical fellowship is found when the Spirit of God flows between people bringing about a joy-producing, life-changing, meaningful relationship between people. That's what biblical fellowship is. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. And this fellowship is essential for human beings to thrive. So this is why you must prioritize, we all must prioritize life-giving relationships um, in in our day-to-day lives. We have to make this a priority. So to be clear, what is a life-giving relationship? Well, these are multi-way relationships. Um, which means it's not a relationship that's dominated by one person. (laughs) 
Um, but instead, these are life-giving to everyone involved. Both people in the relationship genuinely desire to grow closer to one another through friendship. This is a, a key component of, of, we've been talking about the word flourishing for weeks now. This is a key component of human flourishing. We've talked a great deal about flourishing and the opposite of that, languishing, um, in this sermon series. And so the question I would have for you is like, could it be that maybe you're not living to be the me you want to be and the me God's made you to be? Maybe you're not flourishing Maybe we're not flourishing because we're not pursuing life-giving relationships that are rooted in love. Studies show, um, non-Christian studies show that people that do not have these close relationships in their lives simply do not live as long and are not as happy as other people. Um, people who are socially disconnected from one another um, are, are statistically two to five times more likely to die from any cause. Statistically, two to five times more likely to die from any cause based on the common denominator that they are socially disconnected from other people. The former British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, actually provides a great example of this. Um, I don't know if you've read Churchill biographies or seen any movies on the guy or remember your history class uh, from high school, but Winston Churchill portrays this. Listen to this. Uh, we see the physical life-giving power of connection in Winston Churchill. He had a wonderful marriage with his wife. He was deeply connected to his family. He was deeply connected to his friends, his nation, and his work. His health habits were terrible. His diet was awful. He smoked cigars all the time. He drank too much. He had weird sleep habits. He was completely sedentary. Yet he lived to be nearly 90. And somebody asked him once, Mr. Churchill, do you ever exercise? And they just don't make people like, like we don't have people like this anymore. All right, listen to this quote. We don't have people like this anymore. Mr. Churchill, do you ever exercise? He replied, the only exercise I get is serving as a pallbearer for my friends who died while they were exercising. <laughs> Isn't that good? But he lived to be nearly 90 because he had these close relationships. And let me just take a moment. I want to speak specifically to our men here at Crossroads. Men, you and I need friends. Let me clarify what a friend is. A friend is not just somebody you work with. A friend is not the dudes in your fantasy football league or, or any fantasy sport league that you do. Your friends are not the guys you just talk to online while you're playing video games. I'm talking real deep friendships. Men, we need them. This is difficult for us because most of us struggle with vulnerability, openness, um, getting beneath the surface of what's really going on in our lives, and most of us are a little too prideful, if we're honest. We don't want to rely on anybody else. Um, we don't want to rely on anything else to help us become who God created us to be. We think we can just do it. We want to be that person on our own terms, not God's terms. And fellas, it's killing us. Now, this doesn't mean that every hangout with a real friend is a deep, awkward, socially unaware, confessional booth type of hangout, okay? Um, where everybody leaves like sullen and somber and, 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 worse than they, and worse than when, you know, you first got together to hang out. That's not what this is. This is not joy-filled fellowship, first of all. It's not joy-filled. 
And second, it's not the way of Jesus. Do you really think Jesus spent no time laughing, celebrating, and being joyful with his disciples? Do you think he spent no time doing those things in the three years that they were together, doing everything together? Of course not. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that there's a time for everything under the sun. There's a time for everything. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Jesus was fully human and he was perfect at the same time, fellows. So he would have experienced all of these emotions perfectly. And so for us men, we need to have relationships that go deeper than, hey, did you see the game last night? Got to have a little more than that, guys. Okay, done picking on the guys. But to wrap up this first point, ask yourself these questions, and we're going to come back to these. Do I have a friend I can drop in on at any time in person? I'm not talking about Zoom. I can drop in on any time without calling ahead. Do I have a friend? Is there somebody close to me that can name my greatest fears and maybe my greatest temptations? Do I have a friend that I know well enough to know that they're going to respect something I tell them in confidence? Can, I, can people trust me to not share things that they tell me? And then lastly, ask your friend or ask yourself this, like, do I have friends that I can regularly hang out with and enjoy God's good gifts together? So like creation, food, drink, leisure activities. Like, like do I have friends that I, that I regularly spend time with? And depending on how you answer those, I'm going to have some next steps for you at the end of today's message. But yeah, you got to prioritize life-giving relationships. Second thing I, I want you to see today, we have to be okay with being human. We have to be okay with being human. So maybe you're here and you haven't come to the point of identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. But you will likely not question your identity as a human being. You are human. Or maybe you're here and you're, you are a follower of Jesus. And I want to give you a reminder that when you became a Christian, when you became a follower of Jesus, you did not stop being human. You are still human. Being a Christian does not make you less human. Um, it actually, I would argue, it makes you more human. <laughs> um, be, uh, being a Christian does not make you sinless. It doesn't make you free from all sin. Um, there's sin that is common to us all, church. There is sin that is common to us all. There are struggles that are common to us all that still affect our lives. And how do I know that? How can I stand up here and say that as a pastor? I can look at the great heroes of the Bible, the great heroes of the Bible, the people that, that we hold up, and they all struggled with sin. King David is a great example. King David in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, and later referenced by Paul, um, David is referred to, in quotes, a man after God's own heart. Now, I'm not going to lie. If there were a Christian Hall of Fame, which there's not, so don't get excited. But, but if there were, if there were, somebody that had the description by their name, a man after God's own heart, they get in first ballot. First ballot, they're in. There's no discussion. There's no deliberation because they have a man after God's own heart right there. They get in. They qualify for the Hall of Fame. But church, do you remember the details of David's life? He was a bad father. He was a betrayer of his own friends. He was a liar. He was an adulterer. He was a coveter. And he was a murderer. Go read the scriptures. He was those things. 
But here's the defining characteristic of David's life. His heart was pointed towards God. His heart was pointed towards God. And we know this. How do we know this? We know this because we read the Psalms in the Bible. And David wrote many of them. Many of them, he's the author. And and in your Bible, it might even say, like, by David. (laughs) Um, In the Psalms, we see that David loved God. We see that he worshiped God with all his might. We see that he sought God's wisdom. He sought God's counsel. He demonstrated his faith repeatedly throughout his life despite his failures. His faith was tested at times. Sometimes he passed the test, sometimes he failed. But then when he failed, he truly repented. He repented. Now, if you don't know repent, repent is a church word. That means to turn away from sin and turn towards God. He repented. He turned away from his sin and towards God. Uh, think about Psalm 51. Uh, a couple years ago, I preached on Psalm 51, and the title of the sermon was, What to Do When We Sin. He repented. He saw the Lord's forgiveness, and he moved forward in trusting in the grace of God to satisfy him. And here, church, in 2022, in Brooklyn, we need to be okay with being human. King David was human. He was described as a man after God's own heart, and yet he sinned spectacularly, and it's recorded in the Bible, and people for thousands of years have read about it. If he can be considered a man after God's own heart, church, we have to be okay with being human. King David sinned. He was considered a man after God's own heart. If he did that, there's hope for us. Amen? King David was open and honest about his sin. He repented fully, and he threw himself on the grace of God. And he knew that God's grace could cleanse him and wash him from his sin. He didn't attempt to live on a pedestal away from the lowly sinners. He knew he was one of them. Read the Psalms. He knew. And even as the king of Israel, he knew full well his propensity towards sin. So in the church, we need to stop putting ourselves on pedestals. We need to stop putting other people on pedestals. By the way, at the cross of Christ, there are no pedestals. There's just one who's lifted up. Amen? And the rest of us, we're on equal footing at the base of the cross. The ground's level. And when we begin to be open and honest about the sin that so easily ensnares us all, as the scriptures say, then we can begin the process of flourishing. Uh, John Orberg, he has a quote. He says, hiddenness and pretense are always the enemy of flourishing. Hiddenness and pretense are always the enemy of flourishing. And as pastors, uh, Pastor Will and I, we often comment uh, that we are either the first to know or the last to know when something is going wrong in somebody's life. We're either the first to know or the last to know. Um, And I can tell you that when either we are the last to know or even worse, when a deacon in our church is the last to know that something's going on, or even, even worse, when a group leader is the last to know that something's going on, or even, even worse, when a ministry leader or a friend or somebody else in that person's group is the last to know when something's going on, the consequences are usually devastating. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Nothing pains, uh, nothing pains me more than to find out about Um, A marriage in our church that might be struggling or falling apart after years of quiet struggle and nobody knew a thing. Or maybe there's a long private struggle that somebody's having with a sin and nobody knows it and then it blows up. Nothing pains us more than when those things happen. And church, it shouldn't be that way among God's people. It shouldn't be that way. We of all people, of all people on, on planet earth, the church, 
God's people, of all people, we should be the most aware of our humanity. We should be the most aware of our sinfulness. And we should be the most aware of what's going on in our hearts. The hymnist even wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We should be aware. We should know. And so church, why do we keep our prayer requests with those closest to us so shallow? Why do we keep them only on the surface? Um, Why do we pray only the safe things or share only the safe things with those who are close to us? I'm not saying you share them with everybody, but with those who are close to us. Why do we not tell people what's really going on in our minds and our hearts? We need to remind ourselves, church, and be okay with the fact that we are human. And be okay with being human around one another in the church. The church is not a place where you put your mask on. It's just not. And this leads me to my third point. Uh, Can we put the third point on the screen, please? Thank you. Aren't you glad you're not preaching this sermon? Learn to love difficult people because you are one. God will send difficult people into your life to shape you. And if this discourages you, take heart. God is using you too. Because maybe you're the difficult person that God is sending to shape somebody else. We all have difficult people in our lives. But the question for our spiritual growth, the question that we have to ask, if we want to grow more and more into the image of Jesus Christ for the sake of others, if we want to do that, is how do we view those people and how do we treat those people? Listen to the words of Jesus, church. In Luke 6, uh, 27, he says, But I say to you here, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. These are the words of Jesus. Think about the great difference here between God and between us. We tend to only love people who love us in return and prove it first. But God loves people first who don't love him back. God then loves people who don't love him back with an overwhelming love that leads them to begin loving him. That's why most of you are here. We are the most difficult people, church, and yet God still loves us. God loves us this way because this kind of love is the only way to life. And as his people, we too ought to love the difficult people that he sends our way. And while we're on the topic of relationships and community and difficult different types of people, I just want to show you an important distinction that I recently uh, discovered. And I'm I'm speaking here of the distinction between uh, true community and something that we're going to call tribalism. 
So community versus tribalism. Let's start with tribalism. Far too often, especially in the church, we tend to become tribalists. Um, here's the definition. Here's what that means. Tribalists seek out easy categories in which some people are good and others are bad. And they seek out certainty to conquer their feelings of unbearable doubt. Now, I don't have to tell you that that is true in politics. I don't have to tell you that. You already know this. We even have our own channels on the news for our tribe. And sometimes like, we get real excited and we watch the other channel, you know. Um, you already know that this is how it works. But church, this can also occur in the church. And oftentimes we see it occurring around minor or third level theological or ecclesiological, which means how we do church uh, matters not having to do with essential Christian doctrine. We see these things come up. And people use those things, those third level issues, to draw lines. They want to draw lines. And they want to say, okay, if you're on this side of the line, you're in. And if you're on this side of the line, you're out. And we're not talking about a central Christian doctrine. We're talking about, like, maybe how we do church <laughs> or the style of music or something along those lines. Churches and groups can be built on tribalism. And here's the tricky thing. It looks like community. It looks like community. But it's not community. It's the exact opposite of community. This is not the way of Jesus, and this is not the community of Jesus. So here's a tribalist test. Tribalist test. I'm going to ask some questions and you just think. Are you more concerned about who reads what Bible translation in the church, or are you more concerned about serving our lost neighbors together in Jesus' name? Are you more concerned about someone's view of the end times, about how the book of Revelation, like everything in the book of Revelation and what it exactly means? Are you more concerned about that, or are you more concerned about whether or not you're exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit out of your own heart? Are we more concerned with whether or not our children vote Democrat or Republican or whether they get a certain scholarship to a certain school or excel at a certain sport? Are we more concerned about those things or are we more concerned that they grow up to follow Jesus? Do we care more about being right about everything all the time or do we care more about how generous of a person we are? Don't be a tribalist. Don't be somebody that draws lines around yourself and other people. The Bible calls those people Pharisees. And if I remember from reading the New Testament, Jesus has a, like some harsh words for them. But instead, seek community based on mutual affection and a common understanding of your shared humanity with others. Empathy towards different and sometimes difficult people is a gift that God has given us. Listen to that. It's a gift he's given us. Empathy towards people that are different and maybe difficult is a gift. And he's given us that gift to steward in, in this world. And it helps us grow too. Church, we actually need difficult people to reach our full potential. Remember Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So church, let's learn to love difficult people because we are them. So in closing, I want to give you a few next steps and things to consider. Remember the questions um, that I asked from the first part of the sermon? Do I have a friend I can drop in on at any time? Um, is there someone close to me who can name my greatest fear or my greatest temptation? Uh, do I have a friend that I know well enough to know that they're going to respect um, something in confidence that I tell them? Do people also trust me in that way? Uh, do I have friends that I regularly hang out with and enjoy God's creation together with? 
And if you cannot answer yes to any of these questions, then I want to encourage you to take some steps this week to begin connecting with others. Now, you're not going to make that kind of a connection in one week. This takes time. But, le but, but let me just encourage you, there's no better time to start than now. There's no reason to wait another week to do this. And at Crossroads, we have groups, we have communities, and, and we have something for everyone. You can get plugged into these, and you can begin to develop meaningful relationships with other believers and with other people here at Crossroads. That's one of the reasons we have groups and communities. So let me encourage you to do that. Take a step towards that this week. If you're not in a group, if you're not a part of one of our communities that's on the Church Center app where there's group chats and there's people sharing things um, that maybe are in similar life stages or have similar affinities for things that you do, go ahead and get involved in those. If you want to know more about that, go to the next steps table after service. We'll be glad to help you. But get involved. Don't wait. Don't, don't take another week. The second thing, practice using the life-giving quarter second. The life-giving quarter second. What is that? Neuroscientists have discovered that there's a quarter second that occurs between when an impulse to take action occurs in your brain and when that action actually takes place in your body. A quarter second. This is the moment in, so picture yourself, when you are in anger and frustration that you can choose to either give the devil a foothold in your life by expressing that anger and frustration in a certain way, or you can surrender that to the Holy Spirit. A quarter second. And practicing the discipline, church, practice, and I'm telling you this as somebody who needs this more than anybody here, practicing the discipline of surrendering in that moment to the Holy Spirit can give great life to a person where otherwise sin might gain an advantage. The life-giving quarter second. It can give you great life to just practice. When you have that impulse and that moment of frustration, something happens and, 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 and you know it's go time. The life-giving quarter second. Practicing, God, I'm going to surrender this to you. God, I'm going to turn this over to you. The Bible calls this self-control. And it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter uh, 1, verse 5 says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Practicing these things in community with other believers will lead us to grow in healthy, life-giving relationships with others. Always being aware of our humanity, our sinfulness, and always wanting to learn to, to love all the people that God places in our lives. So church, today we're going to partake in something that we do as a community. It's communion. And we do this together as an act of worship to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. His broken body and his spilled blood. Um, if you're a believer, this is a time for you to take of the bread and the cup and to remember what Jesus Christ has accomplished for you through the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body on the cross. If you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, we would ask that instead of taking the bread and the cup that's here today, um, you would consider receiving Jesus Christ as Lord. This involves that word we talked about earlier, repenting, turning away from your sin, turning towards God, and believing that Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be saved. And you can tell him that during our time of response and a prayer right where you are. His grace is available for you today. 
And Paul in 1 Corinthians uh, verse 11, he says this, he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take of the bread, church. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So take of the cup, church. And lastly, church, as our band comes up and begins to play, we won't have a time of response. If you need prayer, if you want somebody to pray for you or with you, Pastor Will and myself are going to be up here at the front. And if you need a prayer of healing or a prayer of blessing, you come and we would love to pray with you. It would be an honor for us. So our band's going to begin playing. We're going to sing one more song. Please stand. And if you would like to come for prayer, we'll be up here. Thank you.